City Reformed was uh, planted 19 years ago um, to be a light to the, uh, to the city, and particularly in the area of, of Oakland uh, and the university and medical community, so we're glad that you're with us. Uh, we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, and today we're in Matthew chapter 25, and uh, before we read, let me pray for the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to this word, uh, there are many here um, who will receive it with confidence, knowing that they belong to you, uh, that they have been bought uh, by the precious blood of Christ, and that there's nothing on earth or below the earth or anywhere or any place or any person or anything that can separate them from the love of Christ. But Father, there is a, a challenge in this text. Um, for those who would grow complacent. And um, I pray that you would just allow your word to speak to the right people today. That you would challenge hearts, that you would assure others. Father, that you would lead by the power of your spirit through your written word. We would take it as your very word and receive it humbly. But I pray uh, that anything that is not of your word that I would say that you would let it fall aside. Um, Lord, it's a hard text, uh, so help us to receive it well. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Readings from Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamp and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough oil for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, before leaving for Bulgaria, Matt and I were discussing this text, and he told me an interesting story. Um, so I've never read the Left Behind series. I'm just curious, show of hands, have you read the Left Behind series? Okay, a fair amount of you. Um, I've certainly heard about the books. I know they were very impactful for many Christians thinking about the end times. Well, Matt was telling me there was a particular Christian uh, music artist named Larry Norman, and he sung a song that gained a lot of attention called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. I'm going to read you just a little bit of that song. He said, life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the great days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we all had been ready. There's no time to change your mind. 
How could you have been so blind? The father spoke, the demons dined, the son of has come, and you've been left behind. 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 So supposedly this song was a large influence on the Left Behind series. Uh, In our text today, we have five unwise virgins left behind. And we have five wise virgins who enter the door to the bridegroom. But the key to our text today is that the five wise virgins were prepared. They were prepared because they were expecting delay. What Larry Norman missed and what many people miss about this text is that the point of the text is not that we're paranoid all the time, but that we would have enough oil. Interestingly, Larry Norman pushed himself so hard in his career that in 1992, he had a nine-hour heart attack, and he suffered permanent heart damage. So in one sense, Larry Norman was prepared for eternity, but in another, his oil was lacking. He wasn't prepared for the ministry that God had before him, and he burnt out. For us, Jesus wants us to be prepared. We don't know when he'll return, but he wants us to be prepared. And there is perhaps no worse feeling than being unprepared. We are in a university and medical area, so many of you know what it feels like if you ever took a test and you were unprepared. Or if you show up to a work meeting and you feel unprepared, or if you forget you have a meeting, it's an awful feeling. And so we Christians can worry, which group am I in? Am I in the five wise or the five unwise? How do I know? Well, before we look at that, I just want to make a note. So I believe this passage is about the return of Jesus at the end of time, his second coming. But there is an alternate reading uh, that assumes everything in chapter 24, the chapter before this, and midway through chapter 25 is actually about the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, So I'm not taking that view, I just want to make you aware of it. Uh, For now, let's look at Jesus' call to be prepared, and I have three points. Uh, First, we're going to look at the unprepared party. Second, lifelong preparedness. And third, uh, we're going to ask, am I prepared? So first, the unprepared party. Um, So what we are really reading in this parable is an explanation of the passage that comes before it in Matthew 24 which Pastor Matt preached on a week ago. We have a vivid illustration of what it looks like for a believer in Jesus to consider the return of the Lord. So I'm going to spend a little less time on explanation in this sermon and a little more on application. However, uh, we do have a few socio-historical hurdles to, to climb over. So you may be wondering who these virgins are and why are they going in the night, verse 6, to the bridegroom. Uh, Children, when two people get married, like your parents got married, in the Bible, the man is called the bridegroom, and the woman is called the bride. So the virgins are best understood as bridesmaids. So children, in the Bible, a, a virgin is a word for an unmarried woman. Now, this is about where a modern understanding Uh, stops with an ancient understanding. So as best as I can, I want to explain to you how marriage ceremonies worked uh, in this ancient time. So first, the wedding celebrations would last between one or two weeks, 
and they were such big events uh, that even some religious celebrations would be postponed for a wedding celebration. And sometime in the week, the bridesmaids or virgins would go to get the bride. And then from there, they would go to the bridegroom. At this point, uh, my understanding of ancient Jewish weddings breaks down. Um, I don't know what they're doing all week long or for two weeks. Uh, I cannot tell you where the bridegroom is or what he is up to. Uh, One scholar guesses he could be paying the bridal price uh, to the father, but that's a wild guess. Uh, We don't know much about ancient weddings, but I do want to encourage you to resist the urge to place a modern wedding onto an ancient wedding. What I do know is that part of this ceremony was that at some point the bridegroom would be announced, verse 6, and the bridal party would go to meet the bridegroom. Apparently, the bridal party did not know when this would be, so they had to be prepared. Now, the symbolism in the text is pretty clear. The bridegroom is clearly Jesus. The wedding's images in Scripture are always Christ and the church, Ephesians 5. Jesus and the church. The virgins themselves would be the church. Again, Christ and the church. So if you're here today and you're visiting or you're checking out Christianity for the first time, you're going to get a lot from this sermon. But Jesus is primarily sending out a warning to any person who thinks that they're part of God's kingdom. They're not. So if you are not yet a Christian, then you're welcome to listen in, but this is not speaking directly to you. The main thrust of this text is that there are five wise virgins who are prepared and five foolish who are unprepared. And if nothing else, this is a frightening, sobering text. Because Jesus is saying that you could think that you are part of the bridal party, but when the bridegroom calls, it is possible to hear the words, I do not know you. I do not know you. And why did Jesus pick five and five? I don't think he's saying that 50% of the people here do not know him. I certainly hope not. But at the very least, it's a strong warning that just because you sit in the pew of a church does not mean that you know Jesus. This applies to everyone. There are pastors on whom the door will be shut, and they will hear the words, I do not know you. There may be elders or deacons or women in ministry leadership or Bible study leaders who may one day hear the words, I do not know you. So we have to take this warning with seriousness, with sobriety, gravity. We have to take it personally, not looking at others or judging others, but looking at ourselves, at our own hearts. R.C. Sproul calls this passage the most frightening passage in the entire Bible. So the first point is that we take it seriously, but the second is to see the finality in Jesus' message. He says, the kingdom of heaven will be like. Now, this is a reference not to the kingdom fully inaugurated, but the time before the great celebration, the great wedding. There are many other parts of the Gospels where we read about a separating, a dividing at the end of time, and this is one of them. The foolish virgins forget to pack extra oil. And when they ask the wise virgins for more oil, there is not enough. So when the foolish virgins return from the market, it's too late. The door is shut. 
Now, a couple of points on this. First, your preparation is not transferable. Your preparation is not transferable. Um, now, before you laugh at this, I was actually listening to an interview the other day with uh, someone who is interviewing an atheist. And the atheist has some aunt who's a Christian. And she made this comment. She said that, you know, at, after I die, if there is a God, I could always ask my aunt to throw me down a rope from heaven. And people really do think these things. They find ways to justify their beliefs in their minds, and they just assume it'll work out in the end. And Jesus is clear to say that your preparedness is your own. You can't share it with someone else when the time comes. Second, there is a door to the kingdom of heaven. And once it shuts, it does not open again. When Jesus says, I do not know you, surely he cannot mean that he doesn't know the names of the people. They were presumably invited to be part of the bridal party. I do not know you means that you are no longer coming through this door. I'm going to treat you now as if I have no relationship with you. This is similar uh, to the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. So just reflecting on this together, you know, many people look at the religions of the world, all the possible things you could believe, and they think it's overwhelming. It's too much. I'm just going to go off my gut and assume that God's going to be okay with my life. And the warning Jesus gives here is that there is a role that we play in preparing for eternity. The options are overwhelming. It can feel a tremendous task to figure out what you believe about the afterlife. But for church-going people who read the Bible or attend a Sunday school class, you have to hear the warning of Jesus. We have to prepare. Now, I don't want you to feel alone in this. The elders, the pastors, the community group leaders, the women's leaders, we're here to help you prepare. Every week in community groups and Bible studies, the church does the work of preparing. It's not an overnight event. It's a lifetime of studying and learning and growing. Children, when your parents say to you, okay, kids, it's time to read the Bible, don't roll your eyes. Don't give a big sigh and have a bad attitude because your parents are helping you to prepare. So I want us together to heed the warning lest we become complacent. So how do we prepare? This gets our, to our second point, lifelong preparedness. As we meditate on the virgins who were prepared with enough oil, we have to ask the question, how is the Lord calling me to prepare? Or what does the oil represent here in my preparedness? In the parable, the oil is something done beforehand for an expected event. It seems the five wise virgins knew that there was a possibility of delay, so they packed enough oil. They knew there was going to be a delay. Verse 5 confirms the delay. It says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So a couple of points on this. If indeed the passage is about the return of Jesus, his second coming at the end of the age, then Jesus is telling us we should expect a delay. Notice that both the five wise and the five foolish virgins sleep, and they're, they're not condemned for sleeping in the parable. Jesus is saying that we should expect a delay. And Matt covered a lot of this already when talking about people trying to figure out the end times, um, so I'm not going to get into all that again. But the point is that part of preparing is the acknowledgement that we don't know when the bridegroom is going to show up. 
We don't know how long it'll be. So let's have enough oil. So what is the oil? Uh, scholars debate far and wide about what the oil is. Matthew Henry calls it grace. The oil is grace. The oil could be grace. Some call it good works, other means of grace, like word, sacrament, and prayer. Spurgeon refers to it as the Holy Spirit because oil is often associated with the anointing of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Um, frankly, I think it could be all of these things. All of these points are necessary preparation for the coming of Jesus. In the text, however, the purpose of the oil is what? It's to keep the lamps burning. What does Jesus say about our lamps in Scripture? Matthew 5, he says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel, but on the lampstand. And he gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It also reminds me of the story in um, Matthew 13 of the sower, where the seed is the word of God. And Jesus says some of the seed was scattered onto the rocky soil. And it sprung up real fast, but the sun scorched it, and it died. So friends, hear me clearly on this. Jesus is warning us that there is a danger that if the bridegroom is delayed, our lamps could go out if we're not prepared. As the bridegroom is delayed, our lamps could go out if not prepared. And I've seen this far too often, and I, I know you've seen it too. Um, I'll refer to the Mars Hill movement. Many of you have listened to the podcast about Mars Hill and heard the story of this giant megachurch that more or less sprung up overnight. And as fast as it was here is as fast as it was gone. And the lamp was burnt out. Many people walked away from that movement literally burnt out. You hear that language in ministry sometimes, or maybe in the workplace. I feel burnt out. I'm getting burnt out. And yes, many people came to faith through that movement, and many people were introduced to Christianity. And I'm sure God saved many people. But many, many people now are very cynical of Christianity because of that movement that burned out. I could actually give you many different stories about Christians or Christian movements that burn out, couldn't I? Uh, the seminary I attended was our denominational seminary, St. Louis, um, in St. Louis, Covenant Theological Seminary. And from my time there, their mission statement always stuck with me. Their mission statement was preparing pastors for a lifetime of ministry. I actually wonder if they had this parable in mind. Preparing pastors for a lifetime of ministry. I used to joke uh, early on in my ministry that my goal was to make it to the end. It's kind of a low bar, right, just to make it to the end. Uh, but reflecting on that mission statement, actually making it to the end is no small task. It takes preparation. That's one of the reasons we educate our pastors and have them go to seminary. I don't want to make too much of this, but I want you to notice that there is both a call to be watchful and permission to sleep. I don't think Jesus is saying to us, be paranoid all the time. I could pop up, you know, like a jack-in-the-box and get you. In fact, I think it's actually almost the opposite. He understands that there will be a delay. It's okay to rest. But whenever he returns, make sure that you have what you need to have. One of the reasons we're attempting to purchase a building in Oakland is that we want to keep the lamp of this church burning. We want to be prepared for the next 40 years of ministry and not just the next four years. 
We don't want to burn everyone out because we need so many volunteers each week to make this service function. That's corporately, but let's think individually. If Jesus were to return now, would you be prepared? If Jesus were to return in 50 years, would you have enough oil to keep the lamp going to meet him? So what is the point? Don't wait. Don't wait to prepare. If you haven't ever prepared, today is a great time to start. If you're on the fence about Jesus, invite him into your heart right now. You can pray in your mind, Jesus, save me. I commit my life to you. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And what about for our children? Children, you're all in different places and ages and stages of life and growth and faith. But what I want you to understand is that as your parents help you prepare, they're helping you to make your faith your own. Remember, we can't transfer our preparation. Parents, we're not raising children, right? Of course not. We're raising them to be adults. We're raising them to make decisions on their own, which means that our children need to do the work of preparation. Our children need to take the means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer as their own. Our children need to wrestle with difficult passages of Scripture and the hard questions of Scripture just the way you wrestled with it. Obviously, this looks different for different ages, uh, but as kids grow, we are moving ever more towards their independence. And it can be scary, can't it? To entrust them with their own preparation, to loosen the reins, on the halter, to lessen our grip, to allow them to struggle. So this leads us to our last point. Am I prepared? How do I know? <clears throat> and I'm hoping to give you all some comfort now, since R.C. Sproul said this is the most frightening passage in all of Scripture. It's possible to read this text as a gospel of works, isn't it? It's possible to read it with this sense that my salvation is up to me. If I'm prepared, my preparation warrants Jesus welcoming me to the wedding celebration. If I'm unprepared, then I'm unwelcome. And just to encourage you, Jesus is not teaching a gospel of works here. Your salvation is not dependent on your preparation. It is still Jesus who saves 100%. There's a temptation to view this like an exam. I've had several exams in my life uh, that I've been unprepared for, and there's perhaps no worse feeling than showing up to an exam unprepared, to find that you don't know any of the answers on the Scantron sheet. Your heart sinks. You feel like a failure. It's not what Jesus is getting at. At the end of time, the way you will enter heaven is not by knowing what the word adiaphra or prelapsarian means. In fact, John Calvin calls the five foolish virgins the professors of religion. Calvin's hearkening back here to Matthew 23, where we heard those woes to the Sadducees, woes to the Pharisees. Calvin's comparing the foolish virgins to the professors of religion, to people who on the surface knew more about religion than anyone else. And he says, they are the foolish ones. The preparation that Jesus is calling us to is not the amount of knowledge that we have, or we would be just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The preparation is having our hearts soaked in the oil of God's grace. 
so that when the bridegroom returns, he will say, I know you. He can call you by name. He can welcome you in. It is not a gospel of works. You know, some of you here today are burning out. You are. Some of you need rest. Some of you need to hand over the reins of ministry to another person. And some of you need to take up those reins. Remember, we expect delay. And how will we be ready to meet Jesus when he arrives? Earlier in the sermon, I mentioned preparing in the sense of attending Bible studies or community groups or Sunday school classes, spending a lifetime of learning and studying scripture into one degree that is preparation. But if the preparation ends there, if all you have is knowledge without relationship, if all you have is works without love, then when the bridegroom comes, he will say, I do not know you. The oil that will keep your lamps burning is not simply what you know. It is the Spirit of God in your hearts who applies that knowledge. In that way, Spurgeon's right. Perhaps the oil is best understood as God's Holy Spirit. Friends, there is this consistent movement we read about in Scripture. There's the gospel call, the information, which you have to have, the proclamation that Jesus loves you, that he gave his life for you, that because of his work on the cross, your sins are forgiven, removed as far from you as the east is from the west. But not all who hear the call respond. It takes the work of the Spirit of God to apply that gospel call to your hearts. And the response is repentance and faith. And so they work together. In one sense, this passage is meant to frighten us because it's about church people. Not all who sit in the congregation are saved. Not all who do the right things or just think that they do the right things are saved. We're not saved because we're good people. In one sense, this, cha- this passage should challenge us, should shake us up a bit. Maybe those who are caught in a particular sh- sin, it should startle us who've grown complacent in our faith. It should scare us if our lives resemble the professors of religion, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But church family, I know that there are those of you sitting here who have tender hearts. I know there are many, many of you sitting here who are worried about your life or your mistakes that you've made or questions left unanswered or you're concerned about your salvation. And if that is you, hear me very clearly. You are the five wise virgins. If you are pricked in the heart, it is because the Spirit of God has pricked your heart. If you feel guilty because of a particular sin, it is because the Spirit of God has given you a godly guilt. If you feel bad that you don't know God more and you long to know him, it is because the Spirit has given you that desire. If you're concerned about the assurance of your salvation, then you have responded wisely. I don't believe when Jesus says watch, it's with this sense of paranoia. He doesn't want you to be constantly looking over your shoulder, wondering if you're saved. Remember, everyone sleeps. Rather, his call to watch is the same in Matthew 26, 41. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Or Mark 13, 35, he says, stay awake, which is the same word in Greek. It's a call, it's a warning in the church for those who have grown complacent, who are just going through the motions, 
or who believe they're saved by their good performance. Watch means watch yourselves. Pay attention to your heart. Is it soft or is it hard? Is it teachable? Is it stubborn? But if you are here and your heart is tender, then you're awake. Then you're paying attention. Then you have every reason to believe your lamp is lit and will continue to burn. And when Jesus returns, he'll look into your eyes and he will say, I know you. I know you. Come in, join the celebration. Remember, we are saved by grace. So I also have good news uh, for those of you here today who think you might be in the foolish camp. The good news is that your preparation can begin now. The author of the gospel is Matthew. And do you know how Matthew came to know Jesus? Matthew was sitting at a tax collector's booth. No one likes tax collectors, by the way. And Jesus came up to him and he said, follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him. And Jesus went to dinner at Matthew's house. And it says that there were many tax collectors and sinners there. And the Pharisees saw it and they asked the disciples in Matthew, and this is chapter 9, they said, the Pharisees, remember those professors of religion, said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then verse 12 of chapter 9, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, the way to the wedding feast, just like Matthew, is believing that we are sinners and that Jesus comes to call sinners home. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Father, we commit this word that we heard into your hands as we commit our hearts and our lives into your hands. Father, we understand the seriousness of it and the gravity and the weight of it. Help us not to presume or assume anything. But Father, we pray uh, that your spirit would continue to work in the hearts and the lives of this congregation to bring many to faith, to challenge those who've grown complacent, to encourage those who have prepared. <coughs> Father, I pray that there would be no one here who at the end of time would not be able to come into the wedding feast. I pray for not just the salvation of this congregation, not just our children, but this city that you've placed us in. Help us to be lights. Keep our lamps burning. Keep us from burning out. Help us to be the five wise. We pray in your name. Amen.